Hi, everyone. We're going to read from Micah on page 8 of your zines. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you, listen, earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. Chapter 5. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be our peace. Chapter 6. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gigal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. We're going to jump to Titus chapter 3. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of our God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. 
He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Let me pray for us as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that tonight, uh, as we look at a text that is tricky um, and confusing, that you will give us clarity. Uh, Lord, open our ears and speak into our hearts and let us hear your voice. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good evening, everyone. Um, We've arrived at the book of Micah today. Uh, Two weeks ago, we had a word against Edom, and last week, a word against Nineveh, which are nations that are surrounding Israel. But today, we circle back to God's people, to Samaria in the north of what we call Israel and Judah in the south. And one thing is quite clear from the beginning of this book, God demands justice, for he is the author of justice. Now, I love justice. I love it. I love knowing that people who have done wrong receive the just punishment for what they've done, which means that I love fictional courtroom dramas. I'm a sucker for them. I find them fascinating, the, the drama, the tension, the way that you're on the edge of your seat just waiting to see what happens next. Will the prosecutor be able to make their case? How will the jury be convinced of the guilt of the defendant I love it. Surprise witnesses, shocking confessions, irritable judges, I love it all. And I know that real life courts aren't really like that, and that's partly why I'm happy that I'm not a lawyer. But hopefully at the end of the trial, there's resolution. There's a judgment. There's justice. And it's important that there's justice because I don't want the guilty party to win. I don't want someone to be able to do wrong to break the law and be able to get away with it. And it frustrates me when they do. And it's true in real life as well. When I see injustices in the world, I want them to be corrected. I want to see the people who are doing bad things to be brought to justice. But it makes me stop and think, do I truly love justice? Do I love justice only when it seems right to me? And how do I really feel about facing God's holy and righteous justice? Now, the book of Micah is strongly about justice. Uh, It is a great book, and it's worth reading all of it. It's only seven chapters. You can do it in 20 minutes. But let me give you some background to it. The prophet Micah, whose name means, who is like Yahweh, was given these words between 740 and 700 BC, and was given to be spoken to all Israel, being Samaria in the north, Jerusalem in Judah in the south. And the beginning of the book of Micah sets out really clearly the tone of God's heart. You see, God is putting the whole world on trial. Now, that's the metaphor that runs throughout the whole book, the whole world on trial. And you can hear the thundering legal voice of Micah in a court in chapter 1, verse 2. Hear you peoples, all of you. Listen, earth and all who live in it. 
that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Micah calls on his witness. God is his witness. And God will bear witness against all the people of the earth. This is a trial where we are the accused. But be warned, this isn't your usual trial that we have in our courts today. When God calls you to trial, calls you to account for your actions, there can be no defense. Now this may sound like Micah is all about judgment, but you'd be wrong. You see, in Micah, unlike other minor prophets we've seen so far, there is significant, wonderful, and substantial hope. And God begins to lay out his plan for redeeming his people. A plan for redemption before the judgment has even begun. I mean, how's that for forward planning? That's amazing. And so what's happening in the book? Well, the book begins with the same type of message we've heard throughout the Minor Prophets so far, so I'll try and give a quick overview of the first three chapters. Chapters 1 and 2 deliver a message of destruction to Samaria, the northern kingdom, which is Israel. These chapters talk of, as we heard earlier, Samaria being turned into a heap of rubble, which is exactly what happens 20 years after these words are delivered. Assyria invades Samaria and destroys it and takes away all the remaining Israelites who survived the invasion and we never hear from them again. Justice. It's hard to read, but it's justice nonetheless. And this is clear justice for the wrongs of Samaria that began as far back as King Solomon's death in 1 Kings chapter 12. The United Kingdom of Israel split into two. Israel, which is Samaria in Micah's letter, and Judah. Israel, the northern kingdom, chose their own king and scorned the king that God had chosen. You see, God wanted all of his people to be one nation, but now they're two. There were ten tribes in the northern kingdom and two in the southern, and now that northern kingdom has disappeared. It's justice. Holy, righteous justice. The time to repent had passed. There was no change in God's mind, no avoiding disaster. God, the judge, has ruled, and his judgment is final. So, unapologetically, you have a tough but just God. There is no getting around that. He gives life, yes, but he takes it away also. And we'll see that in chapter 2, verse 3. Therefore the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. Let's keep that in the back of your mind. Moving on, chapter 3 is a message of rebuke to the leaders of Judah in Jerusalem and a warning of the destruction that awaits them. Listen to these words from chapter 3, picking up at verse 9. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, 
Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. Justice. Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah, will become a heap of rubble like Samaria. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. Now this hill is the same that Solomon built his temple on, that the Ark of the Covenant was inside of where the very presence of God resided. Justice. Holy, righteous justice. For Jerusalem too, the chance to repent had come and gone. No opportunity to return to God in his ways is given. No forgiveness. Only justice from a living God who has been ignored, denied, and opposed for years. Now God is a forgiving God, but his patience has run out. Now both of these messages aren't too different from what we've heard before. Israel, both the north and the south, have wandered far from God's path, far from how he wants them to be living as his people. And this isn't some far-off judgment. It's, it's real, and it's immediate. And there only seem to be dark days ahead for Israel in the face of coming judgment. So is there light at the end of this darkness? Well, yes, there is. Because God has a plan for redemption. Micah chapter 4 shows us something new. Now, we didn't read any before, but it's worth having you read it when you get home. If you're not going to read the whole book, chapter 4 is pretty great. Chapter 4 shows us a vision of when God's relationship with his people will be made right again. A time when peace will reign, not war. A time when all people will live in harmony and the people of Israel will walk in the name of the Lord forever. Here's just a small example. From verse 2, many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The Lord will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. It's a far cry from the current position of Samaria and Jerusalem, isn't it? People will come to the Lord, not turn away from him. But it's not all happiness and not all good news. God has described an end point. He goes on to tell Israel what is necessary to happen between now and then. There will be pain as Judah is taken into exile in Babylon. But God promises to redeem his people as we have seen time and again promised in the minor prophets. Justice, but something more. And thank God for that. We're starting to see a different side to this book that's giving us some hope. There's mercy. God will not punish his people forever. Jerusalem will be a city again after it has been made into a heap of rubble. Israel will once again be able to walk in the name of the Lord. And this idea is meant to make us think of times when Israel has walked with the Lord before. They walked with him as he led them out of Egypt. Even as far back as Adam and Eve in the garden, walking with God. This is being intimately in God's presence. This is the end point. 
This is what God is promising to his people. But how will they possibly get from here about to spend time away from God's presence to walking with him? Well, God's plan continues, which brings us to chapter 5. Now, I hope that all of this hasn't gone completely over your heads, but the last three chapters is really where the gold is in Micah. Chapter 5 shows us a picture of the coming Messiah. Now, it's brief, but if you've ever been to a service here on Christmas Eve before, it might be familiar. Micah is a key book in helping us see the flow of what is called biblical theology, how the whole Bible works together as one story. It helps to show why the Old Testament is important to seeing the complete work of God. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of so many prophecies, but Micah contains a key one. So listen to these words again. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. A king will be born in Bethlehem. Where does that take your mind? Bearing in mind that this was written 700 years before Jesus. A king will be born in Bethlehem, and not just any king. And Israel has had lots of any kings, but one from God, one whose origins are from of old, from ancient times, the Messiah, one who has been with God the Father since before the creation of the world, an eternal son, one who will come and shepherd his people and will bring peace across the entire earth and let his people live securely. This is the king that Israel have been longing for, even if they haven't known it. And for a nation that has been divided, has been enslaved, this must be the most amazing news. For not only will God not punish them for their actions forever, he's going to send someone who will protect them and lead them. And not only them, but the whole world. And we know this king to be Jesus. We've seen how part of this promise is fulfilled through the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. But we're yet to see the complete fulfillment of this promise for peace to reign across our world. That doesn't mean that Jesus failed in what he came to do. We will continue to trust in his promise that he will return and he will fulfill it. Now, so far in our series, we've been listening to God's heartbeat. It's what we're doing, listening to God's heartbeat. We've heard about God's love, his passion, his anger, his judgment, and his compassion. But in Micah, we don't just hear God's heartbeat. In the book of Micah, we hear God's heart break. We hear God having his, his heart for his people, his children who he loves, torn apart. And you can hear it in the words he says in chapter 6. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. 
I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. What have I done to you? How have I burdened you? God wants to know what else he needed to do for Israel, his children, for them to love him. See, he's not only the judge, he's the father as well. And he has a conflict of interest in this court, but there can be no other way since he is God and we are his children. He is an eternally loving father trying to figure out what to do with his wayward children. And God demands justice for this wrong. But it's a demand he can make as the God of love. And I want you to imagine that you're in the place of Israel. Imagine you're, you're there in the dock, you're on trial. What response would you come up with? Could you think of an answer that would in any way be a defense of these actions? God, who created all, who set his people apart to be special, to be his, to be blessed, his people have left God and followed their own idols. For these sins, there must be justice, holy, righteous justice, justice that is thoroughly deserved, justice that has been earned through Israel ignoring God and the will for their lives, justice that cannot and will not be turned aside. Which brings us to chapter 7. It's the final part of the book. Now, chapter 7 leaves us with a picture of both desolation as Israel is left deserted with the exile, but a promise that they will return and repopulate their land. There's hope. The book ends with these beautiful verses that show the mercy and love of God. Micah says from verse 18, Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. God will again have mercy on his people. He will be faithful to them. He will forgive them for their sins and they will have an inheritance. God the Father who loves his children will again walk with them and all will be restored. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's a stark contrast to the first few chapters of the book. But this is our God. He is the God of justice and mercy. Well, what are we to do with the message of Micah? Well, the message wasn't just for Israel in 700 BC, but it is for us today as well. And who can look at their own life and not see times when we have not loved God as we should, or had times when we've abandoned the one who loves us for something that seems better for a time? We all have. We all will. Because we are all sinful, and we all deserve to face God's justice. But we embrace the words of God in Micah because they show a plan for our lives too. Jesus, the promised Messiah, has come. And because he has come, we can now walk with our God. 
For when the ruler born in Bethlehem died on the cross, he died for our sins. He died in our place to face the justice of God. And it's only through this action that God's mercy can be given to us. Justice and mercy. That is who our God is. Now, some of you know that I grew up on the North Shore and Justin was my youth minister way back in the day. You can ask him later about the earring that he used to sport from time to time. Uh, but one of my other leaders when I was a young teenager has gone on to a career as a singer-songwriter in Christian music, Nathan Tasker. Uh, you may know his stuff, you may know him. But if you don't know him and you don't know his stuff, then I urge you to go find out. Some of it's pretty great. But as a Christian musician who grew up on the North Shore, it would be remiss of me to not quote his lyrics when they fit so perfectly. In the cross of Jesus, Nathan sings, Come see where justice and mercy collide. It's there on his hands and his feet and his side. Justice and mercy colliding in the death of Christ. Or as the hymn says, sorrow and love flow mingled down. The justice that we deserve to face was taken from us by Jesus and replaced with mercy. So that on the day that we stand before God, we are seen as pure, blameless, sinless, his own child. And that day will most certainly come when we are called to account for our lives. It seems a little strange, though, to know that God has taken the holy and righteous judgment for your sins. The actions you've done against God, that I've done against God, the punishment went to someone else. Now, Micah isn't the only place we see God's heartbreak either. We see it in the death of Christ, of God, the Father, witnessing the death of his son for you, for me, for the whole world to bring us into a right relationship with him. And that to me is completely astounding that God loves me so much that Christ would willingly die so that I might be set free from my sin. Nathan Tasker continues to sing, come see how valuable you really are. You're worth every tear and the pain of each scar. God's heartbreak because of you will fill our hearts with joy. And God's heart broke so that your broken heart, my broken heart, could be made whole again. And God's heartbreak was only for a short time as Jesus rose from the grave three days later. Justice and mercy colliding in the cross of Christ for you. And we see that in the verses of Titus that we began our service with today and that Matilda read for us. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. So what's our response to be? Well, Micah asks that exact question in chapter six. He says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? No. You do not have to offer these things. Why? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. What does the Lord require of you? What, what a question. What does the Lord of the entire universe require of you, human, made in his image? Well, the answer? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Justice, mercy, humility. To act justly when we see oppression or injustice to help the victims of that injustice. To love mercy, remembering that God has given his mercy to you even though we've all done wrong. And so to act towards others with that same mercy. And to walk humbly with your God, to be with God, remembering his justice and mercy towards you. And remembering that you can only be with him because of his love. To be humble knowing that there's nothing you could do to fix your relationship with him. It took God sending Jesus. And to not be arrogant around those not yet saved because of the grace that has been given to us. What is required of you is all three of these actions. Not one or two, but all three. And that will be challenging, but it is what God demands from you. So learn the lessons of Israel. God demands your attention, your affection, and your entire lives, living to serve him because of all that he has done for you. He wants your heart. Every day, in every circumstance, we glorify him who died for us. We remember his mercy and we embrace it with humility because through Christ, the holy and righteous justice that we deserved has been absorbed by another. And because of that, you'll have the fuel to praise God's name every single day. We're going to sing a couple of songs in a moment uh, that are going to remind us of the time when we will stand before God in judgment. And instead of seeing our sinful nature, you'll see the purity and blamelessness of Christ. I'm going to ask the musos to come up, but let me pray to close. Our loving and heavenly Father, we praise you for your mercy. Though we are deserving of your righteous justice, you turn that aside through your son, Jesus. Help us to remember your love for us every day and everything you have done to save us. Lord, let us turn our eyes to you and yearn for the day when we will walk with you and be in your presence. We earnestly pray, come, Lord Jesus. And I pray this through Jesus' name. Amen.